How many of you, I, well, I, man, I'm really loath to ask this question now that I'm looking around. How many of you have ever enjoyed reading a good book? <laughs> okay, good. Oh, that's, that's better than I thought. All right, so I, I got to looking around and I'm like, I don't know. These kind of people look a little like Western PA rednecks. Maybe they don't read. So, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, many of us have enjoyed reading a good book. And, and for those of you who don't like to read, and that's okay that you don't like to read, uh, hopefully you'll be able to follow this illustration. If you don't, if you're not able to follow the illustration, it'll come back around. You'll, you'll, you'll catch up eventually in the sermon. Amen? Amen? All right. So a lot of times if a book that you've read is really good, what happens to it? Gets made into a movie, right? Like good books get made into movies, right? And that happens a lot of times. However, for those of us who've read a good book, the movie never quite does justice to the book. Am I right? Right? I mean, the movie never quite is able to pull it all together the way the book did. And this is for several reasons. The movie it's typically never able to fully develop the characters the way that it could in a book because of time constraints, right? I mean, most of the time, you read a good book, uh, unless it's a, a Dick and Jane book and Spot the Dog book, uh, it takes you usually hours and hours to read that book. You speed readers can get through it in probably four or five hours, but for the rest of us normal folks, it usually takes us several weeks to read through a good book. And so the author has time... To, to fully develop the characters in the book. The author has time to fully develop the themes of the book. You know, every book has themes throughout it. It's not just the plot line, but there's a theme that's developing throughout it. You know, good triumphing over evil, or the king, uh, you know, finding his queen, you know, that, that romance. They're able to fully develop the theme of the book, not just the plot line. And so that's why the book is usually a little better. You know, and I, like I already said this, the movie is usually much shorter than the book. It's kind of like the Cliff's Notes version. Now, some of you, that's the only book you've ever read is the Cliff's Notes version. You know what I mean, right? I ask people all the time, I'm like, did you ever read this book? And they're like, oh yeah, I read that. And then come to find out they read it out of the Reader's Digest, which is the condensed version of the book. Amen? Anybody ever done that? I used to do that. I used to read the Reader's Digest uh, and, and be like, oh yeah, I read that book. And come to find out I read like a quarter of it. Um, but such is, such is life, right? Now, one of the other reasons that the movie is typically not as good as the book is that usually the characters, the scenes, and the look, the smell, the sound, I know you can't really smell a movie, but you can imagine what it smells like when you're seeing the scenes, right? They're different than the author intended them and definitely different than how the reader imagined them. Like you've read a book, right? And I'm just going to tell you, Smeagol, he it was wrong. They didn't make him right, at least in my in my head. Like what I had pictured in my head. For those of you who haven't read Lord of the Rings or watched the movies, you don't really know what I'm talking about. But you know, the care it's just wrong. I mean, they got the my precious right, but that's about it, you know. But the rest of it, they kind of messed it up in my opinion. They kind of missed the mark on that whole thing. It wasn't quite the way that I had envisioned it to be. You know, and and so it, it always seems like maybe they, they just kind of, it's their imagination versus your imagination. Another problem, besides those things, like it's not how I imagined it and pictured it in my head, another problem is the movie's going nonstop, right? Like you watch a good movie and the movie's going nonstop. You don't have time to 
close the movie and go walk away and kind of process what you've read. You know, if you read a really good book, you'll find yourself while you're sitting there, you know, chopping vegetables for dinner or whatever, thinking sometimes about the book, kind of meditating on the themes of the book and, and thinking about, and you're kind of like, ooh, I got to get back and read that tonight, you know, before I lay down to go to sleep because I want to find out what's happened. So it, this anticipation that, that builds when you pause in the book just isn't there with the movie because you got to watch the movie non-stop i mean you don't have to but Redbox charges a couple dollars a day so it's better usually to watch it non-stop amen okay so you know that's some of those problems right and you have to keep up with the action that's going on so basically the movie though tang though is tangible in, a, in in some sense i mean we all know we can go pick the dvd up and so it's tangible in that sense but in in another sense it's really a shadow thing it's really a shadow thing. And, and what I mean by this is that it's a less than perfect copy of the real deal. Right? We we'll follow the illustration. I mean, it's a less than perfect copy of the real thing. This is why you often hear people remark, oh, the book was so much better. Right? Or they say, oh, you like the movie? You should read the book. You should read the book. And some of you are like, no, I shouldn't. But, you know, it's one of those things. I mean, that's why those remarks are there because it's just never quite right. It's just never quite there. And when you go and read the book and then you go back and watch the movie again, you're like, oh, man, I wish they would have done this and I wish they would have done this. Well, we could say about, we could talk about shadow things with a lot of things other than books, right? It's not just books. Like, give me, let me give you another example of a shadow thing. Now, this is mostly for the teenagers and young adults. Now, I know that you older adults do this too, but this is mostly for the teenagers and young adults, really mostly the teenagers. A while back, there was a commercial that I saw on TV, and I don't know what it was a commercial for. I think it was a commercial to go enjoy real life is what it was really for. Well, I don't think it was advertising anything. But this teenage girl, she is on Facebook and she's friended her parents on Facebook. And she's looking at her Facebook, her parents' Facebook, and she sees they have like five friends apiece. And she's like, ah, you losers, you've only got five friends. And you look at hers, and she's got a thousand Facebook friends. And she's like, look at all these friends I have, and my loser parents, they don't have anything. They don't have any of these Facebook friends. Ha, ha, ha. And she's all happy about this, right? As she's sitting there in her room alone. While her parents are driving down the road in the car, having a good time with their real friends. Can I get a witness? Amen. Amen. Like they're going out to dinner or they're going out to a concert or something. Like they're enjoying life with real friends. Like Facebook friends are a shadow thing. That's not to say that you can't be friends with somebody on Facebook that you're friends with in real life. You can. But I mean, a Facebook friend... Let's be real with each other. It's not really as good as the real thing, is it? Amen? And that's one of the dilemmas in our country right now. Now, I will tell you this. Facebook, by, by far, if you don't have a Facebook and you're a Christian, you should get one. It's the best pastoral tool I've ever used. People think Facebook is in their head. It's not. But they will tell you everything that is going on in their life on Facebook. You want to know where somebody's struggling? You want to know how to pray for somebody? Look at their Facebook. They'll tell you. They will tell you everything. Twitter is worse in a way because they will tell you everything, everything. Because you can only put 140 characters. And so they will give you a play-by-play of their meal. Mmm, good sushi. 
You know, mmm, sorbet was awesome, right? Anyways, you get my point, right? Get, but So this whole thing about Facebook is great in the sense of being able to see what's going on inside of people's lives, to see what's going on inside of their hearts. But the reality is, it's not real friendship. It's a shadow thing. It's a less than perfect copy of the real deal. While I think it's a useful tool, it's not the real thing. This is basically what I think the author of Hebrews is trying to point out in chapter 8. So if you'll go ahead and pick up your Bibles, open them up to Hebrews chapter 8. We're going, to be picking, we're going to be starting there in verse 1, and we're going to be going through verse 6. Before I start reading the Scripture, I want to just kind of catch us back up, because it's been a little bit since we looked at Hebrews, because of the different special things that were going on. So, what's going on here is they're talking about the supremacy of Christ, and how He is as a great high priest, and all of these things, right? How wonderful He is, how He's better than the Old Testament priest, etc., etc. So here's where it picks up, Right? And they're talking about how, how good it is to have a high priest like this. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. That kind of priest he was talking about in the chapter before. right? We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent of the, of the majesty in heaven. Excuse me. Of the true tent that, that the Lord set up. Not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. This is where this concept of shadow things comes from. The shadow things. That's what we're going to talk about, this shadowy copy. And and what does that mean? Now, before we pray, I want you to remember, when I started the book of Hebrews, I told you that... Many times inside of the Bible, we believe that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament Covenant and the New Testament Covenant are radically different from one another. And we will typically use Hebrews chapter 8 to say and to prove that point. And that is wrong. They are not that different from one another. We're going to delve into that concept today. I didn't say the new covenant wasn't a better covenant because he says that here. But we're going to delve into why they're not that different from one another. Especially wrestling with the concept of this. I have heard many Christians say, I have both feet firmly planted in the grace camp. That's not biblical. God is not just a God of grace. He is a God of order. He gives us rules. I'm not saying Christianity is rules-based, that we have to obey these rules to be in a right relationship with Him. But I'm saying there's more than grace to the gospel. 
that is a heresy. That it's just this grace thing that is taught widely in our country. You cannot just have your feet firmly planted in the grace camp. You're missing 90% of what God has to say. There's way more to the gospel than grace. And I think the author of Hebrews actually points that out. But if we start with saying, I want to prove my point that the law is gone and done, and that the God of the New Testament is radically different than the God of the Old Testament, we read that into there. That's called eisegesis. You can remember this $5 word, eisegesis, by it's what I see in the Scriptures. I go looking for my point. Exegesis is what exits off the page to us as we read it in context. That's the proper way to study the Scriptures. Eisegesis, bad. Exegesis, good. I've taught you two $5 words today, right? Amen? So, everybody say it with me. Eisegesis, bad. Eisegesis, bad. Exegesis, good. Okay, let's pray. Father, we come before you today, and we ask that you would speak in a very real and tangible way to each one of us here. Lord, we confess that we at times, each one of us, has come to this place where like, we struggle with how does the Old Testament apply to us? Why, is it, why does it seem like on the surface that you're so different? And Lord, we've even used passages like what we're about to look at in, in more in depth to say that you're radically different. But Lord, we remember and we keep in mind those passages out of Malachi chapter 3 that says, you do not change. Out of Hebrews 13.8 that says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, we keep those in mind and we say, you are the same God and you change not. And we confess that to you and we ask for understanding today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I look around the room today as I'm preaching this, I see on faces, it's first time in a long time I see on faces that I'm, in, that I'm engaged your thinker. A lot of you are starting to really think because you may have been taught that this grace-only gospel. And so a lot of you are like, huh. okay, so here's what I want to encourage you to do as I look around and I see you thinking. Decide at the end whether what I'm saying is accurate. Don't decide at the beginning. Don't make up your mind and then look to tear apart the argument. Say, I will do my best to sit with an open mind and listen to what pastor has to say about this. Amen? All right. So, an imperfect copy. Chapter 7 of Hebrews highlights the fact that Jesus' Jesus's ministry as a great high priest and intercessor is superior to the Old Testament priest's ministry. We saw that in chapter 7. Many times Christians understand this to mean it is a completely different ministry than the Old Testament ministry. Not that it's superior, but that it's completely different but that's not what the author is arguing, right? Let me give you an example because it's Biker Sunday that everybody can follow with bikes, right? A motorcycle is a motorcycle is a motorcycle, kind of. Some guys would say that a Victory or a Harley Davidson or a whatever their brand is, is a superior motorcycle. But is a Harley-Davidson or a Victory motorcycle or a Yamaha or a BMW, are they totally different than every other motorcycle? Are they? Yes or no? Yell it out. All right. Doesn't every motorcycle, not talking about trikes, doesn't every motorcycle have two wheels? Okay. 
Don't they all have an engine? Don't they all have a gear shifter? Most of the time that gear shifter is done with your foot. On some bikes, you shift with your hand. Okay? They all have a throttle, headlight, taillight, saddle that you sit on. Right? I mean, we can go through this handlebars, front brakes, back brakes, at least we hope they do. Amen? Right? We can all go through this and we can all say, you know, look, bikes are bikes are bikes. But there are some bikes that are far superior to other bikes. At least if you ask a biker. Right? They have a brand. For those of you who aren't bikers, think about it with your truck or your car. The brand that you prefer. Some of you think a Toyota's better. Some of you think a Chevy's better. Some of you are foolish enough to think a Ford is better. But <laughs> anyway, I digress. What's wrong with me? No, seriously. But the point here is that that's not what the author of Hebrews is saying in chapter 7. He's not saying that, that we went from riding horses to going to rocket ships. No, he's talking about the same thing. He's superior, not radically different, not this completely different concept, right? It's, it's the same way that a movie based on a book is not completely different from the book. I want to go back to my opening illustration, right? Most of the time, the movie and the book have far more in common than they have differences. Most of the time, the similarities in the movies of movies with the books they're based off of are far they're far more than the differences like what are the similarities one of the similarities is the characters that are present most of the time the book and the movies share the same cast of characters amen right there's the there's the similarities there i mean the second another thing is the basic plot of the story the basic plot most of the time is the same sometimes they change it way and then you're like what? That wasn't even about that, right? But most of the time, the basic plot of the story, right? Uh, the basic feel of the story, i.e., whether it's a romance, a comedy, a fantasy, a historical narrative, a satire, the basic feel of the story stays the same, book to movie, right? So there's a lot of similarities there, a lot of things, but we say the book is superior, even though there's a lot of similarities, amen? Okay, this is what the author of Hebrews is saying is also true about the Old Testament covenant and the New Testament covenant as revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's saying they have a lot in common with one another. You go read chapter 7, that's what he's saying. Again, remember, it says in chapter 8, I'm set because we haven't talked about Hebrews for a few weeks. I'm getting us back to speed again. There's a lot in common with those things, right? There's a lot in common. But like a book, like a book as compared to the movie, more of God's plan has been revealed in the person and work of Jesus than in the Old Testament covenant. Not a different plan. More of His plan. The plan is more fully developed. Character development is more fully there. It's laid out better through the perfected ministry of Jesus Christ, we can actually see what it all means. Right? We can look and see what it all means. And I want to just again articulate to you how the Old Covenant was never meant to be a permanent thing. It was always looking towards Jesus. Genesis chapter 3. 
First book of the Bible, third chapter, right after the fall, God the Father pronounces the first prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ. He looks at the serpent and he says, On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all of your days. And I shall put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. He shall crush your head. You shall bruise his heel. God the Father, from the foundation of the world, intended to send Jesus Christ to redeem us. Redemption never came through the law ever for anybody except one person, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only person who ever kept the law perfectly. He's the only person who never sinned, not ever, not once. The rest of us, we've fallen. We've rebelled. We've disobeyed our parents which is one of God's commandments to not do. We've lied. We've stolen. God had always intended Jesus to come, though, as a full revelation of His will. It's not that God was like, I'm going to try this for a few thousand years. And then He gets to the end of it and He goes, Man, That stunk. That didn't work. I guess I better come up with another plan. This isn't working. I mean, if that's what God did, I'm sorry. Let's just take the mics off. Let's shut it all down. Set a match to it and go home. I'm not serving a God like that. I'm not serving a God who doesn't know the beginning from the end. I'm not serving a God who was surprised that the old covenant didn't work. Because he's not God. I mean, in order to be God, he has to know everything. He has to know the beginning from the end. Otherwise, I might get it right and he might get it wrong. I might as well just bow down and worship Kevin. Right? If God's that way. This Old Testament plan was never meant to be the plan of perfection. It was never meant to be any of those things. God was laying out a plan. He was, he was showing us how to follow Him. He was doing all of these things, and, and more than I could go into today. One of the things that I think God was trying to do was to show us that no matter what He did, no matter how many rules He gave us, no matter how clearly He explained it, no matter how He told us to do the offerings and the sacrifices, we weren't ever going to do it well. No matter how simple it was or no matter how complex it was. He was teaching us. He was showing us our need for Jesus. He's always been doing that. And when Jesus came, it's like going and reading the book after watching the movie. It explains it so much better. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the Old Covenant with its rituals and its rules was an imperfect copy of the things that were to be revealed in Jesus' earthly ministry. And you're saying, okay, fine, Pastor, we get that. But the Bible doesn't say that. Oh, contraire, mon frere. Verses 5 and 6 say exactly that. It says that these priests who were setting up and doing the Old Testament rituals, it says in verse 5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant that he made. 
excuse me, than the old is the covenant he mediates is better since it is created on better or enacted on better promises. Listen to what I'm saying. We want to focus in on the it's enacted on better promises, not different promises, better promises. Not a different covenant, a better covenant. They served a copy of the heavenly things, a shadowy copy of the heavenly things. They saw imperfectly what was really supposed to be happening, and they set that up based upon that. My friends, this is to say that the God of the Old Testament is the same God, and He's always had this as His plan. This has always been what He wanted us to look at. This has always been how He's wanted us to see things, and we've not seen it that way. These were all things foreshadowing and pointing to Jesus. Now, here's the whole, here's the big thing though. I believe that many of us see a lot of what happened in the Old Testament as foreshadowing and pointing to Jesus. I believe that we believe that. I don't think there's any problem with that. Okay? But I think many of us subscribe to antinomianism. Now, I'm going to explain what antinomianism is. You need to remember this. This is really important. Okay, really important for the rest of your life. Even if you can't remember the word, remember the concept of antinomianism. For those of you who are, well, friends with me on Facebook, (laughs) you might remember a story that I posted from Charisma Magazine earlier this week on hyper-grace churches. This story has a lot of good information in it, but I want to draw on one aspect of it here. The author, Joseph Matera, used the term in the article he called antinomianism. And basically, this term means belief that under the gospel dispensation of grace, the moral law is of no use or obligation because faith alone is necessary to salvation. Anti means against. Nomos means law. So therefore, antinomianism or antinomos is against the law. It's we're anti the law of God. The church or the person that says I have both feet firmly planted in the grace camp is very possibly guilty of antinomianism. They say Jesus came and He wiped out the Old Testament law. He did away with all of that. But friends, Jesus didn't leave that up for debate. He specifically said in one of the Gospels that not one jot or tittle, not one dot or iota, depends on your translation, what he's talking about is literally grammatical dots and apostrophes like things like that. Not one of those will pass away until the end has come. Friends, the end has not come yet. He was not talking about till he died on the cross. Jesus, over and over and over again, not only did He reaffirm the Old Testament, He explained better what it meant. He had a better understanding. Here's one of the examples. You heard it was written in days of old. You should not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look with lust, you're guilty of adultery already in your heart. See, He understood it differently. He's like, it isn't the action. It's the heart. It's that you're even got the wandering eyes going on that becomes the problem. Right? 
If Jesus was abolishing the law, he'd have said, you'd have heard it was written in days of old, you should not commit adultery. But I tell you, because you got the joy, joy, joy down in your heart, go do whatever you want because it's all good. He doesn't say that though. Do you, do you hear him say that anywhere? I mean, Paul says in Romans, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. Do you know the New Testament is what most clearly defines sin, in my opinion? It says that sin, in the New Testament it says this, sin is transgression of the law. So when Paul says, so what, are we to go on sinning? Are we to go on transgressing the law so that grace may abound? By no means. We can't, we, we can't have this belief, well we can, but we should not have this belief that under the gospel dispensation of grace that the moral law is of no use or obligation. See, because when we look at it this way, then the Old Testament is not more, excuse me, the Old Testament is not that important to read except for metaphors, types and symbols regarding the coming of Christ, which those things are absolutely there. Abraham going up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. And then the ram being caught up in the thicket by its horns. That was a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ. The priest Melchizedek was Jesus pre-incarnate. That was Jesus pre-incarnate. Right? I'm going to end up falling down the stage if I step on that again. So, um, you know, these are, there's definitely these foreshadowing there. But guys, just because there's foreshadowing of the coming of Christ doesn't mean that we negate the rest of what God is saying there. Paul, in the New Testament, says, I didn't even know what sin was until the law came. I didn't know what it was to covet until the law said, do not covet. And then all of a sudden, all kinds of covetedness came alive in me. And then he goes on to explain, well, what did that which promised life bring death? No, by no means. He's not saying that because it said don't covet, all of a sudden he started coveting. He said, because it said don't covet, I understood what coveting was and found out, woo, I'm in trouble here. I'm in trouble. I got an issue. We can't be into this antinomianism thing. Just as a person can become familiar with and even learn from the movie version of a story, so too can a person learn how to live out their Christian faith by the Old Testament. There's a lot of good stuff in the Old Testament for us to learn how to live our Christian faith. I'm going to challenge you today to either say God's law is good or then stop doing some of these other things that I'm getting ready to mention. Like, don't ever tell anybody again that abortion's bad because sanctity of life comes out of the Old Testament. So either God's law in the Old Testament is good and useful for today still or we need to quit saying, people stop having abortions, please. Because sanctity of life, all of the sanctity of life verses are out of the Old Testament. Right? We need to stop saying that murder is bad. We need to stop putting people in jail for murder. Because all of that was based in the Old Testament law. 
We need to stop being, don't be upset if your husband or wife goes and cheats on you. Because that was based in the Old Testament law. And, and grace wiped that all away. Do you know what I think the real heart of antinomianism is? I am okay with certain things and I'm going to ignore those parts of the Old Testament. The things that I want to do, well, my God, He doesn't care about those anymore. He doesn't care about those things anymore. I like this. And so it's okay. But I guess if we're going to throw out the Old Testament, we've got to throw out the New Testament as well. Because Jesus affirms, reaffirms over and over and over again all of the didactic law. The didactic law, it's another $5 word, is the divine commands. He restated all of them. And then he reaffirmed the prophets. He said, they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? He said, well, here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your being, with all your strength. And the second, they didn't ask him for a second, but he gave him one anyways. He said, and the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On this, the entire law and prophets hangs. Jesus is reaffirming that the Old Testament is still valid for us today. The Bible that Jesus used was Genesis through Malachi. The Bible that the Apostle Paul preached the gospel out of, Genesis through Malachi. The Bible that Peter preached the gospel out of, Genesis through Malachi. They were writing the New Testament, and I would argue that they did not realize they were writing Scripture when they did it. When they tell us about the Word of God and they were devoted in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, this is just a, a couple of months, not even a couple of months after Jesus ascends to heaven. It's on the day of Pentecost. And it tells us that the church was devoted to four different things. The first of which was the apostles' teaching. Friends, there was no New Testament yet. Nobody had written any of it down yet. They didn't even have the Gospels yet. So what was the Apostles teaching? I got a hint. G to M. Say it with me. Genesis to Malachi. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, Genesis is the first book in the Old Testament. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. We can't be antinomists. God's law is still for today. And the reality is, every one of us in this room actually believes it. We believe that it's still for today. That's why we go out and and we try to do stuff where we encourage people to not get abortions. We donate to pregnancy centers that that are doing ultrasounds for people. By the way, that's the kind of pregnancy center I donate towards. The one that does the ultrasound and shows the person, the baby, makes the baby real. Right? That's why we go out and we do all of these different things that we do that are moral things. That's why we go out and and we vote in our government elections for moral standards. 
right? Because those moral standards come out of the Old Testament. The whole thing here is that Jesus, the revelation of Jesus in the New Testament, fleshes out the story better, fleshes it out more fully, helping us to gain a deeper understanding of what it means to be one of God's people. But it's not a different story. It's it's not a totally different covenant. It's a better version of the story. It's a better covenant. It's a covenant more fully revealed where the characters are more fully developed. It's like I said earlier, it's not that God said, well, this Old Testament law thing didn't work, so I'm going to try something new. Instead, he often, as often as the case, he used the Old Testament to pave the way for the better version. Now, let me tell you, honestly, and just for a moment, I want to speak directly to OCCA. Here's how I think antinomianism plays out in OCCA. Now, before I, before I say this, I want you to understand something. I love you, and it is my job as your pastor to call out sin in our body. Okay? Here's how antinomianism plays out in our body. Christian liberty. I have Christian liberty to do these things. My Christian liberty says it's okay for me to do this and it's okay for me to do this and it's okay for me to do this. And we take, and you can, you can bundle that with whatever sin that you want to use Christian liberty for. And those of us who use Christian liberty to say, if you use the doctrine of Christian liberty to justify an action, you're an antinomiast at heart in that area. Christian liberty is not permission nor is it encouragement to go do something. It is grace for when you do. This is how it plays out in our body. I'll go to a very specific example. Okay? Some of the stuff we watch in the movie theater and on TV, it's filthy. And we say, well, I've got Christian liberty. I can handle this, so it's okay. No, it's not. You're using Christian liberty to justify an action in your life. You know how I know it's not okay? Because you won't let your kid watch it. It's not good for them. But because you're what, 18 or older, it's good for you? Uh, I have news. If it's going to corrupt them, it's going to corrupt us too. Now listen, I'm guilty. Okay? I'm not saying I'm not guilty of this. I'm guilty too. You always need to know that, when, especially when I touch on a sin publicly that's going on inside of our body. I, 99.9%, I'm guilty too. It's not me beating you up. This is how we're antinomious inside of our own body. We, we justify stuff. We say, this is okay because I have Christian liberty. Friends, if we have to use the scriptures to justify our behavior, that should be a red flag to us. Besides which, Paul says this about Christian liberty. 
All things are lawful, yet not all things are profitable. We shouldn't be asking whether or not something's right or wrong, friends. We should be asking whether or not it's wise or unwise. Whether or not it's profitable or not. Whether or not it's good for me. Right? You can branch that out into other areas. I believe that God is bringing stuff to your mind right now. Stuff where you have looked and you have said, you know what? I've used the scriptures to justify this action in my life. I've used the scripture to justify this action in my life. There have been times in my life where I have, I have asked God to give me the Nehemiah anointing. Not at OCCA. Because I'm getting ready to tell you what the Nehemiah anointing is. And I want you to know I've never felt that way here. The Nehemiah anointing is a, is a conversation that pastors have a lot of time. In the book of Nehemiah, I want to say chapter 7, I could be wrong. Nehemiah has the Spirit of the Lord come on him with such rage and indignation that it says that he slapped some and pulled the beards out of others. And this wasn't sin. And I'm like, Jesus, can I get some Nehemiah anointing? Because I need to smack somebody. <laughs> and it'd be okay. Right? How is that loving my neighbor as myself? How is that based in love? Right? How is that based in in caring for somebody and putting their well-being in front of my own comforts? It's not. And I say, well, the Lord knows, you know. He says, be angry and do not sin. So I've got a right to be this way. And so instead, because listen, you can be angry and not cross into sin. But see, I'm using the be angry and do not sin to say it's okay for me to be like this. I'm now justifying my actions. And I'm really saying what God has said all throughout creation and and history and all of these things about how we're to treat other people, how we're to love other people, those things don't apply right now because, well, I got the grace card. Those are a couple of confessions of mine. Maybe some of you, maybe some of you didn't know what the Nehemiah anointing is, but you've prayed for it too. (laughs) You know? So a lot of pastors call it righteous indignation. I've got righteous indignation. No, you have judgmentalism right now. I've had it before. It's, I, know, I know what that is. You know? like I, I see it in, in, you know. Listen, here's the point. There's nothing anti-law about the new covenant. It is simply a better covenant because it reveals the fullness of God's plan for mankind. There's nothing anti-law about the new covenant. And none of us want it to be that way either. We don't want grace to be anti-law because then, like I said, how many of you right now want abortions to be okay? Raise your hand. I don't see any hands. See, we don't want the law to be gone. And deep down in our heart, we know it's not gone. But it's more fully revealed, more fully explained inside of Jesus and in what he's in what he's done. This should help us to see that the Old Testament is more than just something that is useful to foreshadow Christ. And I mean it does do those things. But all of its commands about righteousness are still in place today. They're all still in place today. We still learn what sin is by reading the Old Testament, and then we don't go on sinning. We go and we look and we, we hear about how about murder 
And, and then we hear from Jesus that, you know, when, we're, when we look at our brother and we say, you fool or rocker or we're angry without cause, we're guilty of murder already in our heart. And then we go back and we read the Old Testament where David is in the cave of Adullam and, and uh, Saul comes in there to relieve himself. And David's there and the guy's like, get him now, get him now, David. And David goes out towards him and, and then decides at the last minute not to kill him. And he cuts off the hem of his rope. And then he's convicted of that. And then he comes out and he presents himself to Saul. And he says, I could have had you, sucker. No, he didn't say it that way. He's like, I could have had you, but you know what? I was wrong. He was guilty of murder already in his heart and God convicted him of that. And all of a sudden we say, oh, I see the fuller revelation in Jesus. I understand why David was so hung up here. Wait a minute. When I started to go off on my friend, when I started to go off on my wife, when I started raging at my kids, I was crossing that line. You following what I'm saying? And the more the fullness of Jesus begins to help flesh out those historical facts from the Old Testament, helps us to begin to see Helps us to begin to understand. And all of a sudden, the Old Testament comes alive to us as New Testament believers. Besides which, if all you read is the New Testament, you picked up halfway through the story. Like without the Old Testament, Jesus doesn't make sense. But I don't want you to take my word for it. That's why we have homework. Now, for those of you who are relatively new, homework is something that we offer up to you. You don't have to do it. But these are passages of Scripture that deal with the issues that I'm talking about. We give these up every week. These are places in the New Testament that show us that the Old Testament is still valid for us today as a shadowy copy of the things that were revealed in Jesus. It's still useful for us today. And you say, Pastor, why did we have to go through this today on Shadow Things Part 1? Because next week we're going to talk about how Jesus is better. We're going to talk about this new covenant that He mediates. We're going to talk about how He found the faults in the, old, in the old covenant and how He redid those things and how He explained them better, how it went deeper and how His grace and His love for us is fully revealed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But I had to make sure that you knew that we weren't leaving the Old Testament behind. Monday, Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. Tuesday, 1 John 5, 13 through 21. Wednesday, Galatians 5, 16 through 24. Thursday, Hebrews 10, 19 through 31. Friday, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Saturday, Matthew 5, 21 through 26. There's the homework if you want to read. I don't want you to believe me. I don't think you need to just listen to your pastor preach and go, well, he said it must be true. Check me. Sometimes I mess up. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you today. Lord, I believe that this is a people, even though some of what is said today was a hard word, I believe this is a people who loves you and wants to serve you. There's no doubt in my mind that the vast majority, if not every one of us, is here because we love you and we want to serve you. So we ask you to speak to our hearts today. Lord, speak to our hearts this week through the homework. Change us, challenge us, grow us. Lord, help us to see how the Old Testament still applies in our life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen.